This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Do you spend too much time focusing on the operations of your organization and not enough time working toward your goals? In this talk from Craigslist Foundation, Heather Carpenter and Jennifer Shin give tangible skills and essential tactics to help you stop wasting time and start realizing your mission. From the Conversations Network's Social Innovation Channel. Hi, this is Elena Connor Snibby. And I'm Eric Nee. We are your hosts on Social Innovation Conversations. Welcome to the free series of podcasts of Craigslist Foundation's nonprofit boot camps designed to help people help people. To learn more about Craigslist Foundation or the nonprofit boot camp conferences, visit www.craigslistfoundation.org. This series is funded by the Community Technology Foundation of California, which helps underserved communities secure social justice, access, and equality through the application of information and communications technologies. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. And now, here's our presentation from the Craigslist Foundation. For the next hour, you are going to be presented with some great information. Um, we have two wonderful presenters, and we're going to um, hear about how to improve your nonprofit operations in less than two months. So very practical, tangible information that you'll be getting in the next hour. My name is Nora Sandoval. I am currently a UC employee here at UC Berkeley. I work with uh, New Student Services. Um, however, I'm also a board member of the new nonprofit Nexus. And the new nonprofit Nexus is a nonprofit organization here in Oakland. And I'll talk a little bit about the organization in a little bit. But first, I want to introduce our presenters. Um, first, we have Heather Carpenter, who's currently the Assistant Director for Aspiration, um, which is a software development company for the nonprofit sector. Uh, she's served as operations manager, a consultant, and a speaker and trainer for nonprofits in the San Francisco Bay Area and Chicago for the last five years. She developed, as you may all know, um, the Nonprofit Operations Toolkit, which includes resources and, and tips on um, organizational um, operations, and has a website, nonprofitalternatives.org. And then our next presenter, we have Jennifer Tian, who is a consultant and fundraiser, has been doing that since 1995 and also is a founder of the new nonprofit Nexus. Uh, with three other people of color, they realized a big gap in that there's no, non, there's no nonprofit startup center for um, new and emerging nonprofits. And what Nexus does is um, provide services with a cultural competence perspective and um, work with small and emerging nonprofits in individual management, fiscal management, as well as incorporation services. Um, and the nonprofit Nexus has helped about over 25 organizations um, since 2000. And without further ado, because I know we're really running behind schedule and want to make sure we get all the information in, um, I would like for all of you to join me in welcoming our two wonderful presenters, um, Heather and Jennifer. Okay, well, welcome everyone. I'm glad that you found it here. Sounds like you had a really inspiring talk this morning. So hopefully you're all jazzed up to find out more about how to work with your nonprofit in a way that's going to make it much more effective and have some uh, basic overview of operations. 
I wanted to get an idea first. I know this is something that you answered during your registration, and we have kind of uh, aggregate numbers for this. But just to get a sense of how long people have been working in the nonprofit sector. So I'll read off some options, and when I get to the one that corresponds with you, uh, feel free to raise your hand. Okay. So who has been working in the nonprofit sector or with nonprofits six months or less? Okay, wow. So a lot of people, right? Okay, pretty new to nonprofits. How about from six months to two years? Okay, so also a substantial number of people.、Uh, two to four years? Okay, a scattering. And then more than four years? Okay, so also a, a small number. So、um, for those who are newer to nonprofits,、um, this will probably be some new information to you. It will be an overview of many operations areas within a nonprofit.、Um, for those of you who have some more experience, A lot of this may already be familiar to you. So,、um, if it seems to be a little too basic, unfortunately, you know we're really trying to aim for、um, people who are newer to nonprofits. So, just kind of keep that in mind,、um, and then you may have questions at the end that you can get a little more depth out of、uh, if we if we get to that part. So,、um, with that, I think I will turn it over to Heather. Welcome, everyone. So, nonprofit operations is my passion. And I love going into organizations and helping them with nonprofit operations. Not only in, as assistant director for Aspiration, which is a nonprofit, but also the organizations that I consult with. And I notice that I follow a series of steps in the first few months of working in each organization. And so I decided to write down these steps and share them with folks. And so I name those steps the ten nonprofit operations. Success steps, and these are the steps that I'm going to be talking to you about today. Well, Jennifer and I are, and、um, these steps, hopefully, follow them. That you can go back to your organization with the goal of being able to spend less time worrying about nonprofit operations in the future and more time thinking about your programs and achieving your mission, because that's your goal, right? And it might be that I'm. Think that I'm working myself out of a job here, but in reality, I'm not. I think it's really important for to have an admin person or operation person in your organization if you can afford it in your budget. However, I know that in most nonprofits, staff take on many roles, not just the program staff. They might be doing the bookkeeping as well. So hopefully, these steps will be helpful to you today, and they're really practical. So. The specific areas that I may be talking about in these steps are insurance, human resources, financial management, fundraising, and board of directors. So, on to the first step: insurance. Exciting topic. <laughs> Something that protects your organization from liability. So, this is very important for for organizations to have general liability. Something that protects if you have an office, protects your property in the office, also protects you if you have someone come into your office and they get hurt or something like that, a non-employee, like a client or something like that. And、um, I always make sure that my general liability coverage、um, includes special event coverage, so that I request specific forms for my insurance agent. And I say, oh,、I'd, my organization does events. So I want to be able to fill out a form and fax it to you, so you can add my special event to my general liability insurance. 
makes the process a lot quicker, and then I get a certificate back by fax, and I'm all set. Because if you hold an event off-site, you need to make sure that you're insuring it. You need to make sure that you're, you have insurance coverage for it. So Jennifer's going to be talking a little bit more about directors and officers insurance. But the other insurance that isn't too common in the nonprofit sector is errors and omissions. Errors and omissions is also called professional liability. So if you're planning to do any type of consulting or fee-for-service type work where you're providing advice to people, you want to make sure that you look into getting errors and omissions insurance to cover you. So on to Jennifer. Okay, I'm going to be, uh, throughout this presentation, answering some common questions that I know that we at Nexus get often um, from people starting nonprofits or who are new to nonprofits. And one of the things that's most frequent, they say, what does directors and officers insurance cover? Basically, it protects your board of directors in the case of a lawsuit against the organization. So why would someone want to sue your nonprofit? One of the most common reasons is that there's a type of employment dispute. This is actually 90% of the claims against directors and officers insurance is some type of discrimination or harassment lawsuit from former employees, um, or possibly current ones, but they probably wouldn't want to continue working there right then. But um, the other thing that happens sometimes is that anybody can sue the organization, say a donor or a citizen, or even the attorney general, if they think that the funds are being mismanaged. So unfortunately, sometimes in the news, we see that there's been gross financial mismanagement at some organization, and that could make the organization liable to a lawsuit. Basically, the insurance will cover costs of uh, some legal expenses and some other items related to the lawsuit. But if you, uh, your organization is found liable or guilty, it does not apply in those circumstances. So if you do something illegal, basically the insurance cannot protect you from that. Okay. One more thing I want to add about the insurance. If your organization already has insurance, you want to make sure that that hasn't expired, that the information is correct. Because, you know, when you have a lot of things going on, sometimes these things can slip through the cracks. So one day... I walked into my office for my organization and I found that there was a hole in the ceiling and that the ceiling was on my computer and there was water everywhere. So obviously, <laughs> I had checked beforehand to make sure that our liability insurance was covered because I had to replace the computer. So that's just one thing that you want to go back and you want to check. The next step is to create a new hire packet. So this is a good goal to have because, you know, we're all busy. We're trying to hire new people if you have the money to be able to do that in your organization. And sometimes, like, you go through the interview process, recruitment process, and you get a new hire in. And they're like, okay, I'm ready to start. What do I do? And so this is, like, you can create a packet that includes key information and an orientation procedure as well on just telling them about the office, about your organization, the key areas that you want to point out. So the new hire packet includes um, an I-9 form, a W-4 form, a direct deposit form, the personnel manual, benefit enrollment forms, and other blank common forms. So these are like mileage reimbursement forms or reimbursement request forms. So, and then you can have a couple of these on hand. So then if you're really busy and you hire new employees that you just automatically can just hand this to them. And then also if you create an orientation procedure, 
you can have another employee, if you have enough to go around, do the other training so you can focus on other things. So you can just be able to repeat this process. So the next step that kind of ties in with this is also human re resource related, is you want to organize the employee records with, to include this relevant information. So you just had an employee fill out all these forms in the new hire packet, and you want to keep this information in organized format. And it's interesting, you know, I come into organizations and, you know, just everything's just thrown in a file. And unfortunately, like, sometimes employee dispute happens. Of course, you always try to avoid these, but, or sometimes you have to come before the unemployment insurance board, so you want to have this stuff on hand. So this includes employee attendance records, disciplinary warnings, vacation requests, employment hiring forms, and benefit enrollment forms. Very helpful to have. So on to finance. Another exciting topic. Okay. So nonprofits, their bookkeeping is done a little differently than for-profits. You know, with recording fundraising and tracking grants and things like that. So it's really good to have an accountant that you can call on who can help you with your books. Now sometimes you can't afford to get one to come in part-time or full-time. But it's good to have at least an accountant review your books, at least help you set them up correctly, provide you a few tips, and then, you know, so you can train your bookkeeping staff on how to do it correctly. So another interesting tip is I've noticed that a lot of organizations use QuickBooks. You may or may not use QuickBooks, but QuickBooks isn't really set up that easily for nonprofit record keeping. I mean, I know there's the QuickBooks nonprofits version, but it's, anyway. So what you want to do is you want to record your program expenses, your specific programs, by classes. So if you have three programs, you want to designate each of your programs as a class. And there's a lot of training further about bookkeeping. You know, there's the whole Men in Black series. I'm just, just talking about the basics here. And then the other thing is, is that you can record all your funders as a customer and job in QuickBooks. So if you're familiar with QuickBooks, you might be familiar with seeing the classes and the customer jobs. So again, further training, Compass Point, taking their work bookkeeping workshops are really helpful. So, and then having an accountant, if you can't afford it to come in on a monthly basis, is really great because there's the generally accepted accounting procedures or principles, excuse me, that you're, you want to be able to follow. You want to be able to provide, get that oversight so that you prevent fraud in your organization because every amount of money counts and you want to be able to have that towards your programs. And so having someone different to open the checks compared to who deposits them or open the mail to process the checks compared to who deposits them is important, is, is good to have. So if you have that extra, if you have that accountant, they can provide that additional oversight. Now, I'm kind of flipping around like I always do, but the nonprofit chart of accounts um, was created by the California Association of Nonprofits, and it provides helpful line items that nonprofits use, and you can easily, like, upload it to your QuickBooks or, you know, use it, upload it in Excel format um, to use. So, and you can find it through for free on the California Association of Nonprofits website. And then one more thing I want to add is that the IRS is 
cracking down on nonprofits that are filling out their 990 forms incorrectly. So when you have your annual, you, your annual accounting form or financials that you file with the IRS is called a 990. And so since there's so many nonprofits out there and there's been little case, there's been cases of fraud, they're really being careful about following and making sure that you're filing that form correctly. So it's really good to have an accountant help you with that. Okay, so uh, also in line with finances, a common question that we get is how do I create a budget for either a new organization or a new program? And typically what I see, which is very visionary and very comprehensive, is that someone will propose, say, a new organization or a new project. And they'll say, okay, what's everything I could possibly ever need and how much money could I spend? And they might come up with a budget that say, um, say it's a, a small organization that has a budget of 100000 They might come up with a project budget that's also $100,000 because it includes, well, we need, you know, three staff, you know, we'd really like to do all these activities, we want to go about doing all these things. And the likelihood of raising such a large budget compared to their current budget is not very likely. So often they say, well, we've never had to raise money for this program before. How do we know how much we can raise? You know, how do we know how much we should propose? Um, and usually a good way to look at that is to think of it in terms of stages. So what can happen within a six-month time period? And how much money do you think you can realistically raise within that six months? Say you, you think that, okay, we can raise $25,000. And to have something that can be completed for $25,000 within those first six months. Okay, how about the next six months? You know, maybe you think you can raise another 25000 Or maybe you have some momentum to raise 50000 So breaking it up into stages and phases and having things that you can say at the end of every time period, you can show results. You can show an outcome. You can show something that you've actually completed so that you don't have to raise the entire 100000 budget before you can get anything done at all. So that's one practical way to look at it. And there's also other suggestions. Um, and it's okay to build up to that ideal budget. Maybe in the first year, you only raise $50,000. You know, what would that look like? So have some alternatives and have some scenarios versus saying we can only do this ideal budget, um, especially if it's for a new program or for a new organization. The goal of having these forms and these procedures in place is that, so it makes it easier and, you know, faster in the future. So if I create a reimbursement check request, then I know who's ever doing the bookkeeping. Like, as long as I can train my staff on how to fill out the form, then I can get my reimbursements quicker, you know? So everyone wants their money as, you know, as quickly as possible. So, and then also, you know, creating um, the bookkeeping procedures is really great because eventually when you have enough money to do an audit with your organization, first you probably will do a review um, if you're not doing one already. But, uh, um, so, and a review is where an accountant um, comes in and they request information from you and you send it out to them and they review it off-site. But an audit, they're actually checking on multiple transactions within your actual filings and your, your bookkeeping in-house. So, um, and if you have these procedures in place, then, you know, the auditors really like that. They really like to know that you have a set way that you're doing things, that you're trying to maintain gap procedures. The other thing is you want to review vendor lease agreements and bill paying practices. Sometimes like it might seem 
like it's a better way to pay your insurance monthly rather than all at once. Um, or like with a copy machine or any other thing where you can like spread it out to a monthly basis. But with interest rates rising, you know, you might want to do an assessment and see, is this really saving me money by paying this monthly rather than all at once? You know, if I budgeted for it, you might end up saving money if you pay things off up front. So um, I know, like, with the copy machine, <laughs> um, in the past, like, I've ended up paying almost twice as much doing a lease rather than purchasing it outright, you know. So sometimes, if you don't have the cash, you can't do that, but just something to think about. Also, if you have a phone system, you might want to think about that. Okay, the next step is database and file saving methods. So you may or may not have a database for your organization. You may have a series of Excel spreadsheets. I don't know how you're tracking um, who's in your organization. I don't know how you're tracking your funders. But um, something you might want to think about is if you don't have a database, getting a database. And um, idealware.org does a great review on databases that are out there. Um, and then also, if you have a database already, it's good to create those procedures. <laughs> because when you have new staff, it's like you're already doing an orientation procedure. I'm just going to train them on the database anyway. So, um, and then also, you want to create a file saving procedure. So this is like applies to um, online on your computer. So if I create a method in the list of all my folders that I want to name the same thing in my organization, so I have an administration folder, human resource folder, you know, my various program name folders, and then I ask my staff to create those same folders on their hard drive. So then I know that my staff are saving those their documents in the same areas where, I, where I'm saving my documents. So when you start out as a nonprofit, you don't have necessarily, you might not have a server up front to be able to have everyone save something in the same place. But at least if you have created these file saving procedures, then when you do get a server, you can easily integrate all that data. So this also goes with filing. Um, it's good to create a paper filing system as well. So these things. Um, with the goal, they save you time in the future. <laughs> I also have one commentary about files, which is that uh, I often work with organizations um, around their documents and being able to uh, find out what's happened with their fundraising or their history. And um, how many of you have spent literally hours searching for documents? <laughs> hours, hours and hours every week searching for documents. And uh, would you believe that I have worked with organizations that have budgets of over $1 million where people are still searching for files that no one knows where they're kept? So this is definitely something to uh, think about in a serious way. Uh, you know, if there is a cost-saving measure, it's not to spend so much staff time searching for things because if you multiplied out everyone's hourly rate, you could probably uh, have a lot more money to go around. Okay, so this is also has to do with filing to an extent. Um, you know, fundraising is a really important aspect of your organization. Money, um, the money you get helps you to be able to run as an organization. And so um, it's good that everyone has a sense of how you do the grant writing or how you do um, the, your individual donor um, record keeping or cultivation in your organization. 
So, um, so if you set up a procedure and you say, okay, I've applied to Funder X, um, this sp specific foundation, and I filed, followed, excuse me, these specific steps, then I'm going to write this down and I'm going to share this with my staff and volunteers so that they can, if they help me with grant writing, then they'll know the ways that I've taken to apply for that specific grant. Um, I, I learned this really great file method, um, paper filing method in my last organization that I worked for. And it was really great because we had these shared fundraising files. And we had them sorted by year. And so within the regular folder, um, there were subfolders. And each of them were color-coded. And so each of the color-coded folders stood for, one stood for correspondence between us and the foundation. The other um, was the proposal. Uh, the other held the reports that we sent. The other one held the contract between us and the foundation. So that's just an idea of how you can start to track your, your grant proposals because that's really important. And, you know, sometimes you have to, you know, you're talking on the phone with a funder and you want to look up this information and you have it easily accessible. And, um, of course, you can't do the color-coded filing system on your computer, but you know, you can have a series of subfolders that, that stand for the same type of things as the paper files. Um, it's also good to have a shared fundraising calendar. This is, you can either do online or if you know, if you use a paper calendar in the office. Uh, this is good to track grant deadlines, report dates, and renewal dates. And I've worked in organizations, you know, ranging from 500000 to over a million dollars. And so, like in all organizations that I've worked for, I guess you could say they're small to mid-sized. A lot of people are doing development, not just the development person. <laughs> like everyone's involved. And so whether it's preparing grant attachments or things like that, it's good to have that on that fundraising calendar. I have a commentary about what is uh, also how this can relate to, I think, one of the most important things in doing fundraising. The cardinal rule in fundraising is relationships. People give to people that they know that they have relationships with. So often there may be a system for keeping track of, of grants or things that are due, but there's no way to keep track of relationships and contacts that were made. So that, for example, if somebody moves on and someone else takes their place or someone had made a phone call to a program officer or to a donor, nobody really knows what that conversation was about, where they had left the relationship, and if someone new takes over, they feel that the whole relationship is starting over again. So within some database you can do contact management, which is basically tracking every time that there's a phone conversation or an email or some type of substantive content with like a donor or a funder. And so also think about relationships and how tracking can help you to maintain and sustain those relationships. Okay, so with the new organization, you're trying to build your board of directors. And if you've been around for a few years, your organization, you want to help grow your board of directors. And um, you want to see, you know, if they're open to it. Because if you're a staff person in a nonprofit, you know, there's a certain role that you take. If you're the executive director, then you have probably easier time talking about the board with these suggestions about creating a board binder and policies and procedures for the board. But if you're just a staff person, you know, you might, maybe you want to go through your executive director and ask them, you know, hey, is this something we can do? helps the board to be able to better understand their roles within the organization. 
So it's really good to have a board job description. Uh, and the board orientation binder, all right, I'm going to go slowly, includes the articles of incorporation of the organization, the bylaws, any general organizational policies that, um, that you have. So um, if you form a new nonprofit these days, most public uh, 501c3 public charities, the IRS requires that you have an organizational conflict of interest policy. So you want to include that policy in the binder. You want to include the board member job description, any organizational promotional materials, your, your brochure, any other program materials, if you've been in the news or anything, a board roster, and of course, a donation form. Because <laughs> you want your board to donate. <laughs> That's very important. And so then you can gather all this binder, and then when you recruit new board members, there's the orientation binder for them. And maybe, you know, you can have your board chair do that orientation with the new board member and go over the contents of the binder. The other thing is a lot of people don't really think about, but um, your minutes are your, of the board meetings. Well, hopefully you're taking minutes at the board meetings. If you're not, <laughs> I encourage you to do so because it's a, it's a legal document. It's a requirement of nonprofits. Um, and it's a requirement to have it be public. So you want to have this just like your 990, if you didn't know that already. The 990 that you fill out is a public document as well. So you want to compile your board mi minutes. If you're a new organization, then it's pretty easy. Probably only have a few meetings. But you know, I've been in organizations that have been around for 20 years, and they haven't compiled their minutes. And <laughs> so that's a fun task. But once you have that information, you can put it in a binder, and you're in compliance. So we're going to have a lot of time for questions at the end. <laughs> Um, yes, please uh, save your questions for the end. We have index cards that you can write your questions on, and we'll take them at the end. We will have some time. Um, another question that we often get is, what are board members responsible for? And there's a lot of different documents that I've seen that explain that, but probably the most clear summary of that I've included in the handout uh, that was on the table. So if you have that handout, you do not need to write this down again, but I will go ahead and go through these points. Um, it's, it's on page two of three of the commonly asked questions. What are board members responsible for? Um, board members are responsible for a wide range of activities that may not always be considered. They are responsible for determining the organization's mission and purpose. That's pretty common. People know about that. They also select the executive director or the chief executive, and they support that person and assess his or her performance. Many people do not know that the board is actually the boss of the executive director and should assess and evaluate their performance from time to time. The board also should provide proper financial oversight to the organization, ensure adequate resources, ensure legal and ethical integrity, and maintain accountability. So anything that they think seems suspicious or something that they have concerns about, something that they think is maybe not a good idea or not being well run, the board is responsible for that type of thinking. They're supposed to ensure effective organizational planning. So being able to think ahead and not just be reactive and uh, responding to crises, but planning ahead. Recruit and orient new board members and assess board performance. So the recruitment part is often done, but how often do boards assess how well they're doing? Are they performing their job? Do they know their roles and responsibilities? 
The board is also supposed to enhance the organization's public standing. So they're basically ambassadors for the organization. So when they're not at board meetings, they're supposed to be going around the community saying what a great organization it is and being able to be spokespersons for the organization. And finally, they do determine, monitor, and strengthen the organization's programs and services. So although the director of the organization and the staff have a lot of input and influence into what the programs look like, ultimately the board is also responsible for what kinds of programs are being carried out. So I've gone over nine steps so far. So if you go back to your organization and if you're able to do these nine steps, hopefully within a two-month period, then the next step would be planning out the rest of the year. And so the next slide I have is a little overwhelming because it includes like about six more things, but these are things that you want to be thinking about the rest of the year. Also improving your operations. So the step 10 is planning out when you're going to be doing these next things. So the first one, and I know it's really small print, so I'm going to be reading them and going in a little more detail. Reviewing the marketing practices of your organization. So, whether or not you send out a newsletter, improving how you do your newsletter, and your promotional materials, your brochure, your website. So you want to plan out, okay, over the next year, how am I going to improve these items? If they're already great, then that's fine. You don't have to improve them. But, um, or if you don't have any of these items, plan out, okay, when am I going to do a website? When am I going to do my newsletter? Um, am I going to do an, an online, an email newsletter, or am I just going to stick to my paper newsletter? The next thing is, so IT stuff. So I work for a nonprofit now whose mission is to get better software developed for the sector. It's really exciting because I'm an accidental techie, and I've just jumped into this world of technology. And so I've learned a lot, and my head is spinning, but... One of the things that I've learned as an accidental techie, I try to use as many resources as possible to make my computers better. And in the organizations I've worked for in the past, I've been the one that's known the most about computers, which is kind of scary because I don't know that much. But um, CompuMentor has this great booklet and a class as well, but the booklet is available free online. It's called the Healthy and Secure, Secure Computing Booklet. And it just has a step-by-step -step guide. So like what I've been talking about, the step-by-step -step today about improving operation, it has a step-by-step -step guide on how your computer should be and setting up your network and how um, to do a computer inventory. And so, because when your computers aren't working very well and you're trying to fix viruses or things like that, you're spending less time on your programs. So with improved computers, <laughs> And sometimes you can't get new ones, and I understand that. It's making the best of what you have. And I know that because I've made computers last well past their shelf when they're supposed to be gone. But that's what you do in nonprofits. You know, you make it last a long time. And also, um, I don't know if you're familiar, but Complimenter has TechSoup, and they have really great, like, almost free software for nonprofits as well. TechSoup.org. I would download that. I've used it. It's wonderful. So, and then the next part is templatizing and procedures again. And probably by the end of this workshop, you'll probably want to punch me because I'm talking about procedures so much. But um, you want to think, if you're doing events for your organization, which a lot of nonprofits do events. You know, you do fundraising events or you get 
you know, you do something for your clients, you have support groups, you want to think about how you plan out these events so then that it can easily be replicated. Because um, you don't want to be training new staff on, you know, how to do something which you've done 10 times before. You want to be able to, I mean, you do, but you want to be able to make that process easy. Um, you don't want to have to make that staff person learn it, like, by trying to pull the pieces together. Oh, this person was at this event, so I can talk to them. Or this person was at the same event, and I'm getting a little bit of information. But so if they have the procedures, it's all there, and um, they can easily, you know, assist with the event planning process. Okay, so I don't know if you've been to the vendor booth area yet, but there's the Volunteer Legal Services Program by the San Francisco Bar Association. I've used them before. So they're really great because they provide pro bono legal services. So one of the things that they do, I was able to get an attorney for my nonprofit to do my personnel manual. And it costs a few thousand dollars if you're hiring an attorney to do a personnel manual. But it's great when you can get it for free because you want to make sure that you're in compliance with California law. A lot of time nonprofits, you know, take personnel manuals from other organizations, which isn't bad, but you want to make sure that those manuals are in compliance with laws because some, well, first of all, California law, employment law changes all the time. And if you're taking a manual from an organization, you know, 10 years ago, then you need to make sure that you update it. And that's something that it's hard to justify budgeting for, but it's also like if you have something come up, you know, with an employee and the personnel manual, you know, you're going to end up paying more in the, if, that, if, if an actual incident occurs. So you want to make sure that you're in compliance. I mean, there are other personal um, attorneys that you can hire as well, but, you know, generally attorneys cost between $160 to $400 an hour, which is, ah, oh, so much. I mean, I know that's normal for attorneys, but, you know, in the nonprofit world, it's really hard to, you know, hear that. So um, anyway, and I have links and resources on my website. Like I'm trying to compile information about nonprofit attorneys, nonprofit accountants, because this information isn't easily and readily available, like these you know, resources on how to find these people. So anyway, um, the next thing is, so organizing your accounting paper files. I talked about this a little bit before. So eventually, you know, your funders, they like to see a review or an audit. In order to get grant funding, they like to see this information. And sometimes they don't give you funding if you don't provide them with a copy of your review or audit. So you need to be thinking about preparing your books for that. So um, unfortunately, one of the organizations that I came into, the board really wanted to do an audit. But I was like, sorry, we're just, we can't do it. We're not ready. Like, our books are a mess. Um, you know, the files, so the good thing is, is like, if you set up your files now, um, or just start today, you know, fortunately, you know, try not to think about previous years. If you can go back and organize them, that's good. But if you start in the new fiscal year and do it right, then the next fiscal year, then you'll be ready to do some sort of review or audit. So what I do is I put my paper files um, by vendor and by year. So that way, it's easily archivable, so I can easily box them up and put them 
in a corner in storage somewhere in the future, but also um, the year is available for my auditor to review and pull out the paperwork that they need. So, um, okay. The next topic is assess whether or not an office move is necessary. So I've gone through several office moves with my nonprofits, and it's, you know, not an easy process. Um, and so I've blogged about nonprofit operations, and I've blogged about this process, and I provide tips on steps that I've taken to take an office move. And if that's something that you need to do for your nonprofit, because working in your garage or kitchen isn't working anymore, then you, know, you can check it out, um, check out my blog. Okay, so um, this is a lot of information. So the, one of the most frequent requests that we get at Nexus when people contact us about their new or small organization um, is basically overwhelm. I have all these things that I need to do. How am I supposed to move forward? And literally they'll have 10 or 20 different kinds of things that they feel they need to do for their nonprofits. So often um, this process I've described on uh, page three of three of the commonly asked questions. So again, you don't need to write down every step. But usually what we do to help organizations, and you can do this yourself with a coworker or a friend or someone who works in nonprofits. Usually it helps if you do it with another person for added motivation. And basically the first step is to write down, draw, or map every single thing you can possibly think of that needs to get done. Just on a big piece of paper or on a poster board or something, just write everything down. The second thing is to start to group them. Okay, all these things over here are about maybe our incorporation paperwork. These things over here are about fundraising or finances. Start grouping them, put them into groups. And then this is the part that I think really helps people, is that I recommend that a person pick no more than one or two of those groups to start with. You know, you don't have to tackle the whole thing. It's all written down. You won't lose any of it. So pick one or two, and these are the criteria that I suggest. Are the most important? have the most impact. So something that will get done that will really make a difference, that will make the most impact, and that can be started or worked on right away. That it doesn't depend on someone who's going to take a month to get back to you or have something else happen like that. And so basically, you know, you pick the area, one or two areas that you can work on, and then you literally list one to two actions that you can take. In, in that area. So say you've picked like two areas to work on. One area might be, uh, you know, fundraising is a common one. Another area might be recruiting volunteers. So in each of those areas, write uh, two or three steps that you can take. I will do this, this, and this to get more volunteers. In the other area, write, I will do these three things to raise, help to raise more money to keep it nice and simple. And then what happens? Um, the important thing about this is to try to get through it and then to repeat it in about two or three weeks. So you complete those action items, then you go back to that big chart of all the stuff, and then you pick another couple areas. And it doesn't have to be the same, and you list some more action items. So this is a manageable way to keep track of a large number of tasks, but to feel like that there's some progress or completion. Most people, when they're faced with a huge chart of 20 different items, just feel totally overwhelmed. So um, if you follow this process that we've used with our clients, they often feel that they can make uh, small progress along the way. Okay, and then the next thing here, the final piece here that I'm going to uh, talk about is uh, where can I get more information um, and training about the topics covered today? Uh, most of you are probably aware of the three major organizations in the area uh, that offer information about nonprofits, so I'm going to mention those first. Uh, most people know about them. Compass Point is the first one. 
The second one is the Foundation Center. It's a great library that has all the funding information that you would ever want to know. It's literally a library with librarians, and you know you can go there and find stuff about funding. The Foundation Center, and then the last one is the new merger in the East Bay that's called the CBO Center, which stands for I think community-based organizations. Yeah, someone's nodding there because they changed they changed their name a couple times. So. All right. So those are the three major resources in the Bay Area that、um, most people go to for general nonprofit help. And then、um, here are some things that we think could be、um, helpful. We're a new nonprofit nexus. We do have an online resource library. It's organized by category as to general nonprofit information, startup information, you know, where to find volunteers, that sort of thing. So that's on here. Aspiration also has a nonprofit operations blog. And could you say a couple things about what what the blog does or is? So I blog about what I do to run the day-to-day -day operations of my nonprofit. You know, so some of the stuff is what I talked about today. Some of it's not. Some of it's other things. So、um, this is the link to my website. And then also, I just found Office Space, like I told you. So we created the nonprofit San Francisco Nonprofit Technology Center. So、um, that's my. Exciting new office space that we have, and I'm going to be starting monthly nonprofit operations brown bag lunch discussions. So if you just want to pick my brain and ask more questions, or talk about specific topics, so we're going to have our first one Wednesday, September 20th, and、um, they'll generally probably be on Wednesdays once a month, and they'll be from like 12 to 1, and we're We're located right like a block from Civic Center in San Francisco, and it, the address is 1370 Mission Street. So I'm going to put more information about this like on the Aspiration website. Also, the San Francisco Nonprofit Technology Center has a website, so there'll be more information. And then also, I,、um, as I said, I'm a consultant as well as a nonprofit manager. So. A lot of people like will come to my website and get the toolkit, which goes into a lot more detail than I did today. I mean, I know I talked about a lot of information, but the toolkit is includes the key areas of nonprofit operations, and、um, it's really helpful for startups or if you want to improve your organization. And then the last thing is people generally like hire me to come in to implement these steps that I talked about today. So, you know, if you want to talk to me further. Um, I'd be happy to discuss that with you. Okay, so those are good resources on Heather's end, and then this is something really interesting that I found online, and、uh, maybe we'll close with this. I, I also have it in the commonly asked questions. It's the last item on page three of three, which is that: Did you know that you could get sort of a mini MBA in nonprofit management through self-study online? And believe it or not, there are 13 modules that are very extensive, and、um, They're so extensive that if you spent the time to go through them, you probably would have spent the equivalent of an MBA、uh, in the time to get an MBA, reading and going through this stuff. So this is only for the really self-motivated. But in reality,、uh, why I find this is useful, even if you're not going to take the online course, is that it's totally free, and it's a resource. It's a reference guide. Sometimes, if I need to find out something in one of these 13 areas, I just go to that module and I look it up, and I look at the resources and the readings and the chapters that it has. So it's actually really good as a reference tool, even if you don't intend to get this、um, sort of free MBA course、uh, under your belt. And they really cover a lot of the areas that we've talked about today. 
everything from starting nonprofits to boards, strategic planning, finances, fundraising. Um, they even have supervision and management, evaluation. Um, and the last chapter is on ethics, and those are just a few examples. So this is a really, really comprehensive online resource, and I encourage all of you to check it out. I think with that, um, we're uh, at the point for questions and answers. Yeah. This one is pretty straightforward. It says, is there a maximum term for board members? Is a term required or recommended? Basically, the terms for board members are not set by law, so th uh, but they are according to your bylaws document for your nonprofit. In your bylaws document, uh, there needs to be a section that says what is the length of the board term, and that is what your organization must abide by. But there is no sort of overarching law as to how long board members can have their terms. Um, and is a term required or recommended? Uh, it is required that you state some type of term. The most common are two to three years, although it is possible to create something like five or ten year board terms, but you probably wouldn't want to do that because no one would stay that long. <laughs> okay, um, so that's one question. I have a lot on nonprofit software. So, um, okay, so I mentioned in step seven, idealware.org. So they do reviews on nonprofit software. And so they'll do it on databases to um, case management systems. So um, th it, they produce reports which are available on the website. So I highly recommend that you sign up for their um, e-newsletter to find out about you know, software programs. Also, if you're looking for a fundraising database, grassrootsfundraisingjournal.org has also done reviews of databases out there as well. Grassrootsfundraisingjournal.org. They're also another resource that I love because their expertise is individual donors, and Kim Klein runs this, and um, really good about individual donor cultivation. Just another tip. So they have an e-newsletter as well and um, a journal that you could subscribe to. So with regards to the other software questions, okay, so there's vendors here that provide different software. Um, currently, Aspiration is mapping out what software is available in the nonprofit sector. It's called socialsourcecommons.org. It's still in the beta series. Uh, we're, we're, we're currently gathering all the tools that are out there and hopefully you know in six months you'll be able to search okay I need this type of software I need this type of software and you'll get a long list so but um, so just you know keep that resource for later but we there's a need you know to have all one place that lists what software is out there um, there's a couple of questions about uh, boards here it basically says can a board fire an ED the board is the only group that can fire or hire the ED, so yes. Whose responsibility is it to push board members to do what they are supposed to do? The executive director or the board president? Uh, well, technically speaking, it is supposed to be the board president, but often the executive director may also serve that role. Technically, it should be the board president, but depending on the composition of the members and, and the strength of the board versus the ED, often, unfortunately, the ED does play that role, um, but it's supposed to be the board president. So um, I like this question. How do I do all the steps you've outlined while also holding down a full-time job? I can't afford to quit my job and start a nonprofit. That's right. These are a lot of work, and you know it's hard if you're not if you're just a volunteer doing these things. But I don't have really an answer for that. I know that um, that you know pick a step and do what you can. The the how to improve your nonprofit operations in two months is if you can you know 
have a full-time do job doing that. <laughs> That's right. Um, one, one comment that uh, I would have from having worked with a lot of startups and new organizations is that often people do have full-time and or part-time jobs, and they also are working on their nonprofit. And there really is no good way around that because starting nonprofits, unless you know uh, foundations or donors who are willing to back you from the beginning, is kind of a circular process, which is that funders want to see results. They want to see a track record before they even fund you. So how can you get the funding unless you've already done the work? But you want the funding to do the work, so it's kind of the circular <laughs> problem. So basically, most people end up doing that. And um, the only thing that I would say is really helpful is don't do it by yourself. Find a group of friends and or supporters who can help you and to pace yourself, to pace yourself in a sustainable way um, and to try to get a lot of grassroots support from individuals, from friends, from family, from coworkers, from other people, maybe from small companies in your community. Um, this is a really common problem that nonprofits face when they get started. Okay, so we're going to wrap up. Um, if we weren't able to answer your question, you can please feel free to email us. Each of us are going to offer a free session to people who follow up with us. So if you'd like to um, follow us by email, we'll do a one-hour free consulting session with you guys. So If we could quickly thank our presenters um, for their work today. Thank you, Heather. Thank you, Jennifer. We hope you enjoy this free podcast from the Nonprofit Bootcamp series. Craigslist Foundation produces events and online tools that provide knowledge, resources, and visibility to the next generation of nonprofit leaders. To learn more about Craigslist Foundation or the Nonprofit Bootcamp conferences, visit www.craigslistfoundation.org. This series is funded by the Community Technology Foundation of California, which helps underserved communities secure social justice, access, and equality through the application of information and communications technologies. Registered members of the Conversations Network receive a wide variety of benefits. For free membership or to help support our efforts through your donations, visit conversationsnetwork.org. The post-production audio engineer for this program was Jeremy Glenn. Our website editor was Liz Evans. The series producer is Liz Evans. My name is Eric Nee, and I hope you will join me next time for another program from the Nonprofit Bootcamp Series. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.